Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Sky History's Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we're tracing the incredible family history of First World War soldier Alan Noel Minns, and asking why we know so little about the legacy of black British Victorians. To help me in this quest, I'll be joined by the former soldier and director of Recognised Black Heritage and Culture, Gary Stewart, and author and academic Dr. Remy Adekoya. But first, let's head back to 1915 and what was the Ottoman Empire. We are standing on the beach at Sulva Bay on the Gallipoli Peninsula in Turkey. Locked in a desperate attempt to finally end the First World War in this region and seize what is now Istanbul from the Ottoman Empire, the British have tried to launch a late-night attack on the shore to land their troops. It is a colossal failure. They gain less than a mile of land, Silva becomes a place constantly under heavy shell and shrapnel fire, a place where men are left in chaos and confusion for months on end. Here, in the noise and all the horrors, stands a young doctor from Norfolk. His name is Alan Noel Minns. The story I've got for you today is one of tremendous courage, as many are from the First World War, but Alan's life and service to his country isn't the sole reason I find him so fascinating. It's his family history that stretches from an old Berkshire Quaker family to the Bahamas and its capital city, Nassau, and then back to the small Norfolk market town of Thetford that really intrigues me. And for the first time on our podcast, I'm going to be sharing my own research with you and the story I've managed to dig up thanks to the records made accessible to us by Ancestry. One of the first acknowledged black officers in the army during the Great War, Alan Olmins is someone we should be celebrating. So to find out more about him, my first guest is someone who's not only experienced combat firsthand, but is working to educate the public on the history of black service people. I'm joined now by Gary Stewart, who's a former soldier and director of the Recognised Black Heritage and Culture Community Centre. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do at Recognised Black Heritage and Culture? Certainly, and thank you, Fern. Thanks for having me on. I'm the director of Recognised. We're a community organisation. And just to give you some background, we started approximately 10, 12 years ago. Uh, somebody asked us to do a pub quiz for Black History Month. 
I did it, the, like the content, and then from there, we've sort of grown up to 12 years later, doing interviews like this, which we're absolutely amazed to be part of. We did a lot of work around World War One and black African Caribbean soldiers who took part in World War One. So we really made our name in that, but we've been involved in many projects looking at sharing that knowledge and information um, for people from the African Caribbean community and for other people as well to understand how this community has operated and functioned over so many years. And you must be coming across amazing stories and of diverse heritage and of black British heritage mm. and also of heritage of people from black culture mm. who have come to the UK to make their life here. Coming from an African Caribbean background myself, I had no idea that uh, people from the Caribbean and Africa fought in World War One, despite being a soldier myself. And I'm going to admit, I found this out after I've served. I knew of people who served in my time or just prior to that but not going back as far. I mean, 1787 is how far back you can try back the West Indian um, regiments. So from that aspect, it was really good. But also it was a case of setting the record straight. Uh, when we came up to the centenary of the First World War, everybody was jumping in the usual organisations and they were saying, we want to tell these stories, but we were looking at it saying, well, where are the African story and the black stories? And if this is a world war, how does that shape? And like today's story that we're going to be talking about, it also gives us a recognition to understand well, hold on, here's another amazing story about somebody else that for some reason has either been, you know, excused upon whitewashed out the record books or it's just been erased. Can I ask a little bit about your service yourself? Where did you serve? My first operational tour was to the Falkland Islands. My second tour was in the Gulf after the war had finished. So, you know, amazing career, um, amazing time. Would love to have stayed longer, but, you know, circumstances change. Now, today we want to talk about Alan Noel Mins and why he was such an important character for us and why we're doing this podcast on him, because he's someone that I had no knowledge of and no awareness of, whose life and whose backstory and whose family history just gets more and more exciting as you go through the generations. So let's start with Alan. What can you tell me about him? So like yourself, I was really amazed when I found out his backstory as well. And we're going to cover quite a few topics here as well, because as you said, he's very unusual. First of all, he's classed as, and I'm the same classed here, he's classed as a black serviceman. He's also in the army at a time and he becomes an officer. So I'll come back to that. I just thought I'd put that out because that's where we really need to start in his military service. So as you said, we've got Alan. He was um, an English doctor. He trained Guy's Hospital following in the footsteps of his father as well. Now the family going further back, they originally came from Reading. So you've got this family that starts in Reading, then emigrates to the Bahamas. His grandfather was actually a Quaker, which again, that's another tangent to go off onto. And then once we fast forward back here, so he's actually born here in Thetford, where his father um, is also the mayor of Thetford at the time. Now, I was reading an article just yesterday and it talked about them being middle class blacks. It means they were educated. um, They had very good professions as well. Uh, Really more importantly for me that I've looked at is the fact that he was able to afford to train to become a doctor. They don't seem to have had that wealth. And I think his sister, who was here at the time, she seemed to be a lady of leisure as well. So I'm taking it that from that they came from a middle class background that had money. And just to throw the controversial point in, as us historians do as well, it's also looking back to see that his family were slave owners. Now, I'll say that to put it out there, but you know, we've got to do a bit more research in that area. So that seems to be where the family wealth came from. Now, where I'm interested in is there's some pictures of him, not many, there's a few pictures of him, and his complexion is really light. 
And that's one of the key things when we come back to his military service in the fact that it may be he got a pass because he was of a light complexion, a lighter complexion. But again, I've seen pictures to contradict this. So it's one of those, we're still working on it. This is a this is a difficulty, isn't it? In that when we're looking at the history of um, non-white people in British history, mm. there is there are lots of times where we have mixed race families yes. and people who say, well, they could be white, well, they could be black, or they could be that. And there's arguments, and yes. it's actually a very simple thing of just saying, yeah, they're mixed race. Yes, they're mixed race. Yes. That happened. It's not modern. It's not new. It's yes. in the past. It's here. We had these cultures. We had these families then, yes. as much as we do today. Um, So one of the reasons why I love um, Mins is that he has this incredible family history and incredible backstory. And I love the fact you raised the the history of the Quaker side, because part of being a Quaker was that you were not supposed to have anything to do with slavery at all. They were against it. And when the White family moved to the Bahamas and they marry and they marry Rosita, who is a freed slave. And that's where the heritage comes from. It's that 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 Barbadian heritage that moves forward. Let's go back to Alan Mins because which unit did he serve in? So Alan was part of the Royal Army Medical Corps. So again, because of his doctor's background and training, it's a natural progression into the medical corps, treating men um, who were injured. And this is where he comes on to actually win his gallantry medals. He served in Mesopotamia. So that's modern day Iraq. And why that interests me all is the British West India Regiment, which was specifically formed of soldiers from the Caribbean, and was shunted about by the British Army. It was a regiment that was one that wasn't wanted. And normally what would have happened, people like Alan would have been sent to join that particular regiment. And then he wouldn't have been an officer, which is what he became in his normal regiment. And he wasn't one of the first black officers either. There are others that we'll probably mention later on as well. But I'm not talking just one or two. There was actually quite a few people who became officers, um, maybe again because of their complexion or the fact that they were just classed as black. So some people would say that their experience was they came here, they served and they just served in normal British regiments and some were then deterred from joining those regiments and directed back to the British West India Regiment. So it's interesting that Alan served in the Royal Army Medical Corps, maybe because of his skills. Um, it's interesting that he was award, um, awarded the highest distinction twice. Why would soldiers be awarded that medal? What would they have done that was, was seen as so amazing? Let's be honest, to be honest with that, I mean, somebody has taken the time to write a report. So some some condition that he'd carried out on the battlefield. I believe he'd gone back and risked his own life to save other servicemen at the time who were injured, at a time where he probably could have gone and sought shelter. He actually went back and he sought and treated them and recovered them back into British lines at the time as well. So, I mean, when we talk about gallantry sometimes, we have this idea in our heads that it's, you know, you had to have, you know, taken on a hundred men and then, but sometimes <laughs> it's just the fact that you, you save men who were probably destined to die. And, you know, he was renowned. And the fact that he's actually done it twice and was mentioned in dispatches, that is a real amazing achievement. So this is an incredibly brave man, not only someone who's highly skilled as a doctor and is treating wounded soldiers, but someone who is willing to risk his life to save those men who are injured or, or are in danger on the, on the battlefield. So he was awarded the military cross in 1915. So that's quite early into the start of the war. But he also won the Distinguished Service Order Medal as well, which, wow. you know, that, there are people who have been recommended for these types of medals before and they were turned down. I want to give a name, Walter Tull, who was also an officer um, in the 23rd Battalion Middlesex Regiment. There's still a campaign out to get him his military cross because he actually died on a raiding mission as well. Became an officer, amazing story. And it's interesting that they were in the army at the same time. 
And there's a rule in the, the Manual of Military Law which states that black officers must not lead white officers into battle. Jesus. And then yet here we've got two examples, not one, but we've got two examples of men who aren't supposed to lead men, who do lead men. And Walter Tall became a lieutenant um, before he was actually killed in action. And here we've got uh, Alan, who was also, you know, rose to the rank of captain. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if you were a black, uh, a black soldier and you were serving, if you came from the Bahamas and, and the West Indies, you would be in a regiment of a whole load of black soldiers. Whereas if you were black British born, you had the opportunity to serve in, in a white regiment or what is a, is a majority white regiment. And you have the opportunity there to become an officer, but that was barred from the people from the West Indies. Not quite. So, like I said, because he was born, he was black British, it seemed that he just got in no problem at all. And that, again, maybe because of his background and his heritage and his skills. But there were people who were highly qualified who came from the Caribbean as well to join here. Some soldiers actually stole away to come to Britain. They got here. And when they got here, they were taken to court. And this, you can actually see this in the Stratford Express wow. newspaper archives. So when they got here, the, um, the British Army was in this state, but saying, we don't want black soldiers in our regiments. But it's contradictory because in other regiments, they've yeah. already got black soldiers and black British. Yeah, so we don't know where exactly this came from, but we have seen it in time and time again. But when the actual Caribbeans came in and tried to join those regiments, sometimes they were turned away and said, we don't want you. And in this one incident, it was like, I think there's a sergeant that's actually saying to the police, the police have been told to arrest these men. The police are saying, well, what do we do with them? And the army saying, well, we don't want them. And the police are saying, well, they've come to join the army, so it's your responsibility. And, you know, you've got this pattern of book. And in the end, they went to court because they stole away on the ship. And what was really unique is when they got to court, the, even the judge was saying, well, it's not like we're going to see a black guardsman, isn't it? And this is going back to 1913, 14. I think the... I work a lot on... Um, uh, I've started researching and, and looking into kind of um, mixed-race Victorians because the Victorians is my specialist field. And I wanted to know more about the lives of people who... Not just black British, but Chinese, Indian, Asian, everyone who came here who married and, and settled and had a life. And I think one of the things that really that continues to surprise me is on the one hand, you see acceptance and joy and a shared culture in a shared community. And then just these moments where, well, racism and bigotry just smacks people in the face and just puts a stop to a life or a career that would was vital and would have been so important. And hearing you talk about... Um, the experiences of black British and black soldiers who wanted to fight for Britain in our in our army during World War One. It, it, it's the same thing, isn't it? On sometimes you get moments of acceptance and understanding and diversity just as normal life. And then you have systems of power that say black officers can't lead white men. I mean, it's just ridiculous to me. Well, I mean, there's so many ways. And, uh, you know, I do enjoy your field of uh, research as well. I think it is because it tells us in the beginning, it allows us to go back to the beginning. And like sometimes you look at it and you actually think to yourself, 100 years on, you know, we've just marked the end of the centenary, 100 years. And it's like, we haven't really moved, have we? <laughs> in, some, in some cases, it's like we're telling the same stories. We're talking about, you know, recruitment of men. We're talking about, you know, British troops at high level. This came from high level. You know, we don't want black servicemen in our army. Then it starts to go wrong. Remember, they were going to be home by Christmas, heavy losses. And then it's all, um, who can we turn to now, you know? And like you mentioned before, they're Chinese. I mean, the Chinese weren't involved in the First World War, to most people's eyes. 
but they were involved in some horrific, some of the most horrific uh, circumstances that it almost just come to light as well. And it's time for us to take this story. If we're going to stand up and talk about Britain in the First World War, because remember, Germany likes to be a bit quiet about it as well. But if we're going to stand up and, you know, shout from the rooftops, you know, we were the greatest nation and we won the war, then we must tell about all those aspects and all those who fought in the war as well. And the fact it took to, you know, even though there was a lot of stories written by other historians and research done, I mean, I do stand up to that. A lot of it was done. It was just really few and far between or not really shared. And I, I think, as you said, going back to Victorian times, we're telling the same, we're repeating the same story, you know, and the fact that these black men who one was born here and, um, you know, grow, grown here, Walter Toll. There's another name I'm just looking at here on my notes. Um, John Alkindor, who was another famous doctor from London as well. He was actually refused by the Royal Army Medical Corps to join because of the colour of his skin. So, you know, you're looking at exactly at the same time, he attempts to join the Royal Army Medical Corps to turn him down. He's a self-taught doctor as well. So what he does, he moves to Paddington, round the corner from Paddington Station, where all the troops were being recovered back to. And then he's just going around treating, eventually joins the Red Cross and the Red Cross have him. 100 years later, fast forward 100 years later, he now has a blue plaque on his original practice building, which is still standing. And, you know, but here we've got, again, another story which talks about bigotry and racism. But in the same corps, the same regiment, yeah. does that make sense? And that's why I said there may be a, it may be a colorism, shade of color issue. I'm not sure. But yeah, that's another story to check out to give us a really good contrast. And yet he, um, John Alkindor is fated by the British Red Cross. You know, he's actually been marked and remembered. I think, you know, I, I'm so surprised by, by the UK at this time because in 1913, so just before World War One, we get one of our our first black mayors in London, who's a mayor of Battersea, it's John Archer. And he's someone who is celebrated. And when he when he gives his speech of, of, of acceptance of being made mayor, he talks about how Britain is a country where the colour of your skin doesn't stop you from being from, from a barrier to office and, and things like that. And we are, as you say, over 100 years later, still having those same conversations, still regarding people, black British people who have any form of success as unique and somehow an exception to the rule. And it shouldn't be that. They should all be, everyone, everyone in this country should see this history as something we all share. Because it doesn't, you know, it's not about having black British history only being for people who are of black British heritage. It's it's, as much my family's history as anyone else's and I, th- I think it's something that I really hope we we start to see a change and maybe it's just a case of making sure we tell these stories over and over and over again to get people to listen to them. Well I think it's really important what you said there about listening we go back to the second world war this is repeated in the second world war as well you know and we can see this constant pattern of um, people serving Serving for Queen and Country, you know, the Caribbean was considered Britain as a motherland. Became Spitfire pilots, never talked about. They served in the military, never talked about. Uh, served in the navy, never talked about. And after the Second World War, they're then invited to come here. You know, on the SS Empire Windrush. Now people think that there was just this mass immigration of people just coming here. First of all, there were subjects of Britain, so you know, they sort of had a free passage. Yeah. It's not immigration. Yeah. You're allowed to come. You're supposed to come. We've all got this book and paper that we all abide by, you know, they're allowed to come. Secondly, they all paid to come here. They didn't just like turn up one day. They actually, that first ship that came, what you don't see on the SS Empire Windrush, you know, in bringing it into a sort of modern day context, 
is that was actually bringing back Caribbean servicemen who were on leave in the Caribbean after the end of the First World War. I never knew that. Yeah, that's why the shit was there. So people just think, oh, there was a boat that turned off and everybody just got on and came to Britain for a free life. This shit was particular. Coming back from, um, I think it was coming back from Australia, on its route back, and they said, we've got to go to the Caribbean, pick up some soldiers. And at the same time, the British government has decided Britain is broken after the Second World War. It needs labour, it needs help. So it puts out an invitation in the Caribbean, invite you to come and work here. You've got to pay your own fare to get here, by the way. <laughs> you know. So what do you think we can do today to help these stories really become solidified in our, in our shared cultural memory? Well, again, as historians, one of the things we like to do is put it into context. And the context is we need to be teaching this in schools. And um, I think you said about educate. It's about educating people, but also people stopping to actually listen, you know, because like, we can hear something sometimes, but we don't listen. So the first thing is to get people to listen and understand and think, well, if you're going to stand and wave this flag, you're waving that flag for everybody that falls under that flag. You can't wave it and say, well, actually, I'm sorry, you're not included as well. So for me, that's a real important point for us to get across. I do a presentation on this uh, on World War One, and I have been doing throughout the four years of 17 which um, finished. And I remember doing one in a church in particular in Burton-upon-Trent. And again, not a large black community in there, but I was invited to do a presentation. And I remember doing this presentation and just looking across as you do when you're talking and this sea of like mainly white faces people and they were just looking at me and I thought oh I don't think this one is going really well <laughs> so I finished the presentation and then I sort of say thank you and I look down and, I, and when I look back up there's about 15 20 people waiting to queue to speak to me so I'm like I'm going to get corrected as people like to do sometimes and there was the, um, an elderly lady that said to me, she goes, I cried. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done now? Because I've been doing Poppy Day as long as I can remember. She said, she goes, I'm 70, was she 70 something? She said she was. And she said, I've been doing Poppy Day forever. And she goes, I've stood there every year for those years. And I had no idea what you've just spoke about for the last hour. She goes, she had no idea that black soldiers were involved in the First World War now. And because I, I have a really good presentation with images and pictures. So I'm not just telling you what I think. I'm actually showing you these pictures. And she actually said to me, she goes, thank you for coming here today. But I said, I'm really glad I came, but please don't cry again because if people... You know? <laughs> and just in that moment, I thought to myself, so here's somebody that's been collecting for Poppy Day and standing there and had not, not through any real... No, there was no malice in it. So she just said, I had no idea. And I was just thinking, if we've had so many generations that have passed and have been stood there telling a story and not telling the story fully because they weren't aware. What does that say for where we are as a society yeah, today? It, it, what does it say for our education? What does it say for our history and how our history has been remembered? Because it's about making sure that people see themselves in our museums, in our heritage, in our war memorials. It's about making sure that all of those stories of everyone who served are made clear. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, if people want to then counteract against what I'm saying, because I'm talking specifically about black or African Caribbean soldiers, we can look at the Chinese labourers who didn't fight or were asked to do one of the worst jobs in the time, which was to bury bodies that had already decomposed. Oh, God. And then we look today. Yeah, so that was their specific role. They were labourers and that was one of their roles. They suffered from PTSD, what we would say today. But at the time, in fact, like I said, I mean, there's some really harrowing pictures of it as well. And you're like, nobody ever talked about it, but they were on our side. You know, if you want to look at um, African soldiers, I mean, nobody talks about the campaign in Africa, but we had African soldiers who were British soldiers and whole tribes and families that destroyed the ecosystem and the food system in Africa in order to make sure that the British could actually fight there as well. 
But what we have to do is just like look at it is these are the people who were on the side of the British during the First World War and we were one as a community, you know. Something Gary so eloquently explains there is the complexities of the bigotry facing black soldiers coming to the UK to serve during the First World War and the horrific rules set out by the military elite that barred those born here from being officers. It's uncomfortable for many of us to look at this time and acknowledge that this is when we would allow black people to die for us, but we wouldn't allow them to lead. But that's the reality, and we can't shy away from it. What Alan's service record then shows us is that when the rules of combat go out the window, we see people for who they are. Capable, courageous and absolutely vital to the health of our community. So, having heard about his life as an army doctor, I want to know more about the family this man came from. And to do that as a modern historian, and especially during this time of lockdown, I turn to the incredible documents and resources held by Ancestry. Now, digitised records are a really fundamental part of the practice of a modern historian today. They let us access collections across the world and, in research, make connections in minutes that would have taken years before now. It's a really exciting time and can mean the historical record moves and shifts very quickly, which is actually where I think a lot of the resistance to change comes from in our wider community. We tend to think of history as slow and ponderous, but in reality, for a modern-day historian, it's really fast and very exciting. So the first thing I do to find out more about Alan Noel Minns is to turn to the few records we do have about him, his birth and death and his father's name. Alan Glazier Minns is the first black mayor of Thetford, serving in the first decade of the 20th century, an Edwardian man who, as a doctor, held a very important role within his local community. In fact, he was such an intrinsic member that he's recognised in the book Norfolk and Suffolk in East Anglia, Contemporary Biographies, written by W.T. Pike in 1911. And his entry goes like this. Minns, Alan Glazier Minns, Alexandra House, Thetford, youngest son of the late John Minns, born at Inagua, October 19th, 1858. Educated at Nassau Grammar School and Guy's Hospital in London, medical officer at Thetford Workhouse, Honorary Medical Officer at Thetford Cottage Hospital, President of the Horticultural Society and Mayor of Thetford in 1904, 1905 and 1906. He was also the grandson of a freed black woman who lived in Nassau and her name was Rosetta. In fact, on the digitised records of the slave registers from 1813 to 1834, Rosetta is recorded as owning slaves herself in 1822, a woman called Delia, who's 22, and Pacelia, who's 11 years old, and Mary, who's aged 34. Her husband and Alan Noel Milnes's great-grandfather, John Minns Sr., also owned male slaves, all under the age of 25. Together, they had at least seven children, all born in Nassau. Now, these tantalising glimpses of the Minns' lives in Nassau come from birth records and death records, the slave registers, and as the family grows, marriage records and baptism records. All of these records are held on ancestry, and from them I learned that John Minns Senior had been born in St Giles Parish in Reading, England, in 1771, and his family were Quakers. 
Also that one of his sons, John Mintz Jr., would marry a local Nassau woman called Ophelia, who herself was also possibly mixed race. They then go on to have ten children, three of which make their way back to England, tracing in their grandfather's footsteps. The eldest, Pembroke, born in 1842, leaves home first, travelling to Boston on his way to England to become a doctor in 1858, and lying about his age. He's followed by his baby brother, nearly 18 years younger, Alan Glazier, our Alan's father, and then their sister Ophelia, to the little Norfolk town of Thetford. Here, the Minns family make their home and become integral members of the local community, working, marrying and looking after the people around them. And it's there that Alan Noel Minns is born. This is the reality of our shared histories. They aren't clear-cut or carried out within strict boundaries. They're complex and surprising. Simply put, they're human. I'm so interested in the lives of people like the Minns family, who are mixed race and successful in middle-class British society in the last half of the Victorian century. A time when many of us might expect that mixed race people were not accepted. So to add more context to what Alan Noel Minns' experience would have been as a mixed-race person over a century ago, I'm going to speak to someone who's penned an up-and-coming book on this very subject. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm joined now by Dr. Remy Adakoya, who teaches political science at the University of York and is the author of Biracial Britain, A Different Way to Look at Race. Remy, thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell me a little bit about your book and what we have to look forward to in it? So listening to discussions about race in Britain, which have been specified, 
uh, in recent years, particularly more so in recent months, but I started the book uh, about two years ago. Uh, I was sort of struck by the fact, you know, how much of our discussion on race is at a very general level. So, you know, um, uh, surveys are conducted, you know, and, you know, experts generally, uh, high profile um, uh, people of black and brown skin color very often, you know, will be asked to come and speak on how they interpret those results. And that's it, basically. And what I wanted to do was, first of all, write something which would actually be based on the real life lived experiences of real life flesh and blood. And in my case, I was very interested in people of mixed race background like I am myself. So I wanted to speak to real life people. I wanted to speak to people who are not public figures because, you know, public figures can have the best of intentions, can be the best of people. But once you're a public figure, there is always going to be a certain level of censoring in what you say. There's going to always going to be a certain level of self-editing. But if you are a regular person, you know, if you're an accountant somewhere in Manchester or you're somebody who is not actually active in public debate, you don't necessarily have those inhibitions. You know, you can speak freely and say it as it is, basically. And I wanted to get those kinds of stories. I wanted this to be real. You know, I didn't want it to be disingenuous. The only thing that's worse than not talking about race is talking about it disingenuously. So number one, when people think of mixed race people, they usually think, oh, someone who has one black parent, one white parent. But that's just one part of the whole mixed race community. So I spoke to people, obviously, of that kind of background. I also spoke to people who are mixed um, Asian white, which is another huge group here in the UK. So people who might have a Pakistani dad and a white English mom or vice versa. And then I also spoke to a third category of mixed race people uh, who are classified in the census as mixed other. So essentially, those are people who are mixed race, but with no white parent. And the stories of these people very rarely sort of come into the public eye. And so I wanted to speak to people like that also, because I assume that would be a very different experience and presented them in the book along with my own commentary and some of my own experiences growing up mixed race uh, myself. This sounds like a fantastic collection and very much a modern historian in what you're doing of, of taking these first-hand accounts and, and showing what the world is like for people who are mixed race in Britain at this time. Now, mixed race people are today's fastest growing minority group in Britain. Is this something that we have a, a misunderstanding of as being a modern day perception or have mixed race people always been part of our culture? Uh, mixed, mixed race people have definitely been a part of British culture for a long time. The difference is that 80 or 100 years ago, we were, you know, statistically negligible. So it was rare, simply. So what's changed now, if we're going to be technical about it, a mixed race person getting married to someone of any race is going to, quote unquote, produce a child that's also mixed race. Yeah. So that sort of multiplies, 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 uh, multiplies that factor. So where we've changed in is in our numbers. And I think these demographic changes in our numbers are responsible for a lot of the psychological dynamics I noticed in my conversations, which are changing the way mixed race people are sort of ready to present themselves to society and the demands they are ready to make of society. You know, so, so our position in society, our psychological position in society was much weaker. The mixed race identity was a defensive identity in the 20th century. You know, we just tried to adjust to fit in somewhere wherever we could, you know. But now there's, there's so many of us, you know, people feel more confident, especially of the younger generation, to accept their identities and how they see themselves rather than have, you know, just have to accept whatever society decides we are. 
Now, for today's podcast, we've been discussing Alan Noel Minns, and he's a mixed-race medical officer during the First World War and the son of Britain's first black mayor. Now, you mentioned that if someone is mixed-race and they uh, they marry someone who's white, that their child is still mixed-race. That's Alan's, Alan's experience and also his father's, because it was his grandfather who was a white man who married a black woman. And Alan's father and his uncle and his aunt came to the UK, set up a doctor surgery here and were heavily involved in the the political and social life of the village that they ended up in in the Midlands. And this is all in the middle of the 19th century. It's a time when people are very surprised to find that we had mixed race or, or even simply non-white people living and taking part in the life of this country. How would his life experience have been different from a mixed race person today? So first of all, first huge difference. So in, like I said, um, the people I spoke to who were even born around the Second World War, which was after this, uh, first of all, that whole concept of mixed raceness didn't exist. What existed, what dominated was one drop rule. So if you have any black in you, you're black, end of story. There's no mixed, mixed race this or mixed race that. So, 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 so people who grew up during that period, they didn't even think of themselves as mixed race, the people I spoke to. They knew, of course, you know, oh, I have a white mom or I have a white dad, but because everybody around them, absolutely everybody around them, and this especially uh, with regards to people of a black heritage, because if you were, for instance, mixed with an Indian heritage, you might have even sort of looked white and people who might not have known might have even just assumed you're white. And most of the people I spoke to, or all the people I spoke to, go around then said, I thought of myself as black simply because that's what everybody told me I am. So th- there, there was no negotiation here, you know. Um, and again, we go back to, to, to what I talk about, you know, so few people that, you know, no sort of power to assert their identities had to accept what society imposed on them. So, 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 so people grew up essentially, you know, thinking of themselves as black you know, or at least talking about themselves in that way, even if internally the person might have said, well, you know, I have this white mom, I might even be closer to my mom, for instance, than to my dad, uh, or vice versa. Uh, some people actually grew up with only the white parents, because many of the children um, uh, of the mixed-race children who emerged, you know, during that Second World War, post-Second World War period, were children of, you know, African-American soldiers and an English lady, white English ladies or white Scottish ladies. And first of all, intermarriages, interracial marriages were illegal then in the US. And so many of them, you know, the father simply left after the war and they were raised by their mothers, you know. So they were actually closer to the white mother. The white person was actually the sort of closest person to them in life. Uh, but they couldn't even begin to think of themselves in the sense of even whitish, let's say, <laughs> because of the fact that, you know, everybody around them, the communication that was coming, the message that was coming is, you know, you're black, end of story, you know. So it's only now um, uh, that people sort of think of themselves, you know, even in those sort of terms, you know, mixed race or some people prefer, you know, mixed heritage. Uh, so it's changed, it's changed vastly. As I said, again, I go back to the something we have more autonomy now to assert our identities than, you know, we dreamt of having 100 years ago. You mentioned the one drop rule. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail? Where does that come from? Yeah, so that comes from the, you know, um, uh, racist American um, uh, Jim Crow laws uh, set up, which essentially stipulated that if someone, even if you have a 164th (laughs) element of blackness in you, so even if your great, 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 great um, uh, grandfather, you know, um, was black and everybody else there was white, you're black. 
you know and that still is the dominant paradigm though you know it's not stated explicitly anywhere no few people will admit to this explicitly but it's still actually the dominant implicit paradigm in how mixed race people are perceived in the u.s certainly you know and we go here and, and i wrote about this at the beginning of my book you know the of course easiest example is obama you know he's referred to as the first black president yeah, not referred to as the first mixed race president. And there was a whole discussion around that when he ran in 2008. And, you know, but he, people said, oh, but, you know, he was raised by a white mom and your white grandparents, etc. How did he feel about it? And essentially, I, I read an interview with him uh, where he was asked that point blank, you know, you were raised by a white mother and your white grandparents, your father essentially wasn't really in your life. So how do you feel when you're, you know, referred to simply as black? And his essential answer was, well, you know, American society sees me that way and so basically i don't really have much of a choice you see so this is 21st century and he said something like that of course there were reasons why he also was happy to identify as black you know so political reasons so ideological philosophical reasons you know not wanting to sort of distance himself from black you know and say, oh, no 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 i'm not really black you know that wasn't the point but what was interesting there was that he didn't feel he actually really had a realistic choice to identify himself because that's simply the way America works, you know. So that paradigm, that one drop rule, even though few people defend it explicitly today, it's still the implicit assumption. And I'd say here also in the UK, it tends to also be the implicit assumption, though it's definitely not, I'd say, as strong because of the fact that, you know, thank God, I hope it never gets like that, that um, race is not that much of a sort of central defining feature of, of, of everyday life in Britain as it is in the US. Well, that's that's something I was going to ask you about. So the research that I've I've done a little of looking at mixed race um, experiences in the 19th century in the Victorian period has shown a very clear kind of class divide. So in the middle classes and the lower classes, you do get mixed race marriages and they're often presented in, in contrast to America's attitude to mixed race matter marriages. It's something that's often discussed as a great love affair and, um, and between people who of different races who meet apart from if it's in the upper classes and when it's in the upper classes there's a huge uh, panic and fear when it's discovered that a peer of the realm a lord has died and his his first male descendant is the mixed race son he had with someone who was a slave and there's a huge fear that he will then sit in the house of lords and we would have our first black peer which to someone to someone like me who is always looking for positivity in the past and always looking for, for good experiences was dis incredibly disappointing and, and shocking to find. Do you think that the difference between class really hit on a British understanding of race or is it, is it simply that we find racists everywhere? I think that, you know, there's definitely always a class element. I actually try to analyze these things, not actually just through a racial lens, but through a sort of human lens in the sense of, you know, in groups and out groups. So here in Britain, you know, you have racial in groups and racial out groups. In Nigeria, for instance, where I grew up, you have ethnic in groups and ethnic out groups. Okay. And society is divided alongside that logic. Uh, so these divisions always exist. And what is discernible also in this division is that, you know, there's always sort of a group or small groups or small cliques of people in every society who are sort of dominant, the upper classes, you know, and that snobbishness factor always exists. This group always tries to re restrict 
new membership so there's you know as few of us as possible you know enjoying as many spoils as possible you know i know it's a little bit also more complex than that it's not just that uh, simplistic only about materialistic spoils but there is definitely that kind of tendency to sort of keep the group at the top as small as possible okay now in the british context such in groups will look for every excuse to exclude potential new members Plus, of course, we have to acknowledge uh, racial prejudice would have come into it in the sense of authentically held, authentically held feelings of superiority. And uh, definitely, you know, how can we claim, you know, because what is the sort of legitimacy of any group of people to rule over a society? It is the explicit or implicit understanding by the society that they are in some way better than others. If not that, you know, how do you explain the fact that you get to tell me what I should do? You know, uh, you have to be able to explain that somehow. So I'd say there's strategic reasons, sort of strategic class reasons for this, plus you factor in probably authentically held or authentically felt um, prejudices. I think one of the things that I'm I'm fascinated by is is when I look back at the period that I study, um, it's very clear the systems in power. It's very clear the people who have been in control of how we've seen that period in history. And then there's everyone else who is just getting on and being alive and living their life and, and being part of it. And one of the things that I've, I've loved and um, I'm really excited by is that's where we are now finding the accounts of ordinary people who were mixed race or who were non-white, who were living in Victorian Britain and were experiencing life and were just, just present. How, how hard do you think we have to work now as a nation to bring those stories to light because we don't acknowledge mixed race heritage really as a, as anything other than a modern thing. And as we know, that's not the case. So, yeah, so I mean, I'd say it's fantastic. There's people like you doing, doing that kind of work. I told you that sort of the period, the people I, I wanted to sort of focus on people I was able to speak to, you know, sort of still living. So I'm not uh, really aware how much information there is out there in the sense of sources on the lives of mixed race people like in your work did you find many did you find a lot of you know memoirs i don't know letters you know sort of a lot of evidence there well i i have i've barely scratched the surface on this but i i do know from what the research that i do in in newspapers because I'm, I'm very much based in that we do we are seeing more and more stories and once you start to pull a thread with history and everything else tumbles forward and i think it's why books like yours are so important because they will be the records of the future from the experiences that you've recorded, do you think we are getting better at being more inclusive and accepting people's um, wide and diverse experience in the UK, or is it getting worse? No, 100% it's getting better. Uh, based on what um, people told me, so not just my opinion, um, uh, based on what people told me, I mean, especially the people who, like I said, you know, are in their 60s now or 70s, you know, I mean, for them, they say it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different world. Okay. But I mean, they grew up in a world where they didn't see any black people on TV, for instance. Yeah. Uh, or in the movie, like, like zero, like nothing, you know. Like, I remember they were telling me, you know, when I was growing up, so say people who grew up, who came of age in the 50s, they were like, you know, there were no black people on TV in the 50s. That, you know, this started in the late 60s, really. Yeah. When we had the first Sydney Porte and other um, uh, black actors, that was the first time I could actually see people, you know, who, who looked like me or, or somewhat like me actually on TV, you know, as quote unquote normal, one lady told me. Um, uh, so, so that was a completely different reality, you know. Um, so now, obviously, um, TV looks much different. Uh, radio sounds different, 
we really always sort of assess our reality based on our expectations of reality. I think a lot of the sort of dissatisfaction or critical sort of um, opinions we have about what's going on now is based on the fact that we have much higher expectations. Yeah, we have much higher expectations than were there 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, so 30, 40 years ago, the expectations were much lower. Now the expectations are much higher. Uh, and that's why uh, younger people today can feel, oh no, you know, we're really falling short here. We should be doing much better. And so I think it's always important to have that sort of, to have that sort of perspective and, you know, criticize the present, but also think about what the past looked like and appreciate, you know, what the present has looking forward to the future. Remy raises a really important point about the memoirs of mixed race people in the 19th century. And if you know of any, please send them my way. And what his work also shows us is just how important it is to conserve these lives and preserve their place in the historical record. Alan Noel Minns lets us ask questions about the history of our black servicemen. And his long family history tells us to look more closely at slavery, abolition, and the way our society has treated our mixed race citizens who have always existed. So let's end with one final record from Alan himself. It's a report in the Birmingham Daily Post from Saturday the 30th of October 1915, and it's one of his earliest mentions in dispatches. Temporary Lieutenant Alan Noel Minns, 35th Field Ambulance, Royal Army Medical Corps. For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty at Solver Bay, Gallipoli Peninsula, on August 30th, 1915. When attending to the wounded under heavy shrapnel fire, another officer who was assisting him was killed. Lieutenant Minns later returned to the dressing station, took out 12 stretcher squads and brought in 24 wounded men. That's the memory I want to leave you with, of an incredibly brave man, searching a ruined battlefield for the injured so he can keep them safe and try to save their lives. And that's it for another episode of Not What You Thought You Knew. Search us out on social media and the Sky History website for all the latest information on the series. And make sure you're subscribing on your podcast app. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Gary Stewart and Dr. Remy Adekoya. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, with research by Mary Unze, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 